0: let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Church history is a tumultuous topic. It's easy for us to take for granted the fact that certain things are the way they are, but most progress made by the church throughout her history has occurred in circumstances where it wasn't always evident that the church would thrive. What seems straightforward to us, namely that the heretics lost and that the Orthodox Catholic faith prevailed, was not always so clear to those who inhabited the church in various periods. To study earlier generations of Christians is to become aware of very serious assaults, both from within and from without, against the church and there have been times when it appeared like the orthodox and catholic faith would not survive these assaults whether they were from other religions hostile governments or heretical sects. we can think of saint athanasius whose work on the incarnation we read at our friday study towards the end of this school year saint athanasius was a bishop in alexandria in egypt in the fourth century who vigorously opposed the heresy of Arianism. Arianism stated that Christ was not of the same substance as the Father, but rather he was an exalted creature who was adopted by God. While much of Athanasius' work was used by the Council of Nicaea, from which we get the Nicene Creed, in his own lifetime, he was exiled from his episcopacy five different times for being opposed to Arianism. So I would argue in light of the story of people like St. Athanasius, the study of church history is in many ways a study of providence and a study of God's faithfulness to his church in spite of both external pressures and even our own disobedience. Fast forward to the present moment here in the Western modern church. Things are certainly not dire in terms of external persecutions. We can ask our brothers and sisters around the world about that. However, we do face serious challenges. Rather than be extinguished from the outside through force, the American church risks deconstructing itself through capitulation, rot, and impotence. According to a Pew study in 2020, less than 50% of people identify as a member of a church synagogue, or mosque. And it's not just a problem with younger people, like millennials, of which I am a part. Since 2000, 9% of baby boomers and 12% of Generation X have stopped attending as well. This decline has been paralleled by a sharp increase of the nuns, not the religious order for female female monastics, but rather nuns, N-O-N-E-S. I wish we had more of the other kind of nuns. But these nuns are those who statistically believe in a god, but don't identify with a particular religion. And for some perspective, in 2009, 17% of people identified as nun, while in 2019, just 10 years later, 26% of people so identified. And you can contrast this with a sharp decline over the same period of time of people unidentifying as Christians. In 2009, 77% self-identified as Christian, while now only 65%. Further, in 2017, a LifeWay research study found that upwards of 66% of college students who had been previously raised in the church stopped attending church during college for at least one year. So why the decline? Because it's clear the church does not have the same kind of social capital that it once had. Well, for one, we could point to increasing secularization. Christianity, which should be the organizing principle for how we live our lives, has become merely one option among many competing in the marketplace of ideas. Further, enlightenment and modernistic ways of thinking have infiltrated virtually every Christian tradition in the West in different ways. Some churches have jettisoned biblical and Catholic principles for the spirit of the age, while others have embraced an unhelpful kind of fundamentalism that leaves them ill-equipped to engage with the questions being raised by our culture. Further, in some parts of the church, people are being driven out by unchristian behavior, whether that's an oversaturation of the political in the church or toxic leadership styles. We are, of course, aware of the crisis in the Roman Catholic Church of abusive priests, but we're finding this is a more common occurrence in other traditions as well, as one can see based on recent news coming out of the Southern Baptist Convention. Christianity Today has recently released an interesting but tragic podcast called Who Killed Mars Hill about the well-known evangelical pastor Mark Driscoll and the collapse of his church, Mars Hill, that at its height had an average Sunday attendance of 12,329 people until it was disbanded in light of revelations about his toxic behavior. It's easy when looking at these trajectories to fall into two different temptations. The first is the temptation to lose hope. Less young people going to church and instead being catechized by the larger culture, means we will continue to experience contractions in the coming decades. Things will get worse before they get better. And it would be easy to give into despair at that point. But the other temptation is that we might take it upon ourselves to fix it by looking in all the wrong places, voting for the right politicians, pushing a particular political party's agenda so we can go back to the good old days. Unfortunately, neither of these solutions is really sufficient. We can't lose hope, so long as we have the God we have, and we can't cast our lots with or be overly wed to the political, lest we compromise the tenets of our faith for lesser goods. So what is the answer? It's here I think today's readings are helpful, in particular our reading from the gospel according to St. Luke. In the reading, Jesus gets in the boat owned by Simon Peter to teach a crowd of people that were pressed upon him to hear the word of God. And when he's done with his teaching, he instructs Peter to push out further into the deep and cast their nets. Peter, of course, initially objects, saying, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But he nevertheless obeys, and that obedience leads to success. They catch so many fish, the nets begin to break. So they call over another boat, which helps them. But then there are so many fish that both the boats start to sink. And Peter's response to this great occurrence is to fall down and exclaim, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. The sign that Jesus showed Peter is sufficient for Peter to believe that he is not worthy. And it's here then that Jesus commissions Peter, James, and John, Do not be afraid. Henceforth, you will be fishers of men. This reading is many things. It's the story of a miracle. It's the commissioning of the early disciples. But perhaps most importantly, it's an allegory about the church. Peter's boat symbolizes the church of the apostles, which is built on and promulgates the teachings of our Lord. And I never get tired of pointing out, and I know I've done it multiple times, but I have to do it again, that the place in the church where the congregation sits is called the nave, which is related to the Latin word for boat, where we get the word navy. And that Christ gets in Peter's boat shows his enduring presence in the church that he founds through the apostles. That the apostles are sent to fish corresponds to the great commission that Jesus gives the disciples as he's ascending to heaven at the end of Matthew that they would go into all the world and preach the gospel and make disciples through baptism. St. Ambrose, who lived from 340 to 397 and whose preaching is responsible for the conversion of St. Augustine, remarks that it's fitting that the fishermen here use nets because nets don't kill fish but keep them safe and bring them to the regions above. Similarly, the task of the church is to speak words of life to those who need to hear them, not death. The lack of success that the disciples had experienced the previous night before Jesus was present points to what happens when we try to accomplish our mission through pure human ingenuity, charisma, eloquence, or other supposedly self-sufficient means. Instead, we fulfill the tasks that we're given through the grace imparted to us by the various means Christ has given the church. The great success of the fishermen can be read as a picture of the early church per the Acts of the Apostles, when the response to apostolic preaching was overwhelming. One need only consider the great feast of Pentecost, where we're told that 3,000 souls converted because they heard the gospel proclaimed. But we can also read their success as a negative. The fish do begin to sink the boat. Where there are people, there tend to be problems. And so St. Augustine reads this part of the story as an exhortation that we should always remain in the church even when it's weighed down by vices and other shortcomings. The church is still the church even in those dire situations. And finally, we can read the confession of St. Peter in our reading this morning, when he proclaims, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And the encouraging response he receives from our Lord as a foreshadowing of the sacrament of confession, in which we receive grace even after we have sinned. As St. Ambrose says, See how good the Lord is, who gives so much to men. And so how do we apply this story to where we find ourselves today the first thing we can do is disabuse ourselves of a few notions namely that church growth whether qualitative or quantitative is primarily because of programs charismatic pastors or any other human thing we can come up with certainly churches that introduce various kinds of gimmicks might experience a kind of temporary success but statistics show that those kinds of churches have high turnover rates among membership because they don't feed souls the way that people need to be fed over the long term. A second principle we should disavow is that church growth is somehow dependent on political battles. While certainly legal and political battles are important, they're also often downstream from the culture. So we can't be dependent on politicians or judges or whoever else to grow churches for us. It's one of the great paradox of Christian history, in fact, that when the church has lacked institutional support is precisely when it has flourished the most. So I think there are a few positive takeaways from our reading today that do describe how we should respond to our current cultural crisis. And they can all be summarized by saying, the church should be the church. We should be about the business of preaching the gospel and teaching the word. We need to break out our nets so we can participate in evangelism. And this is much harder and deeper than simply buying tracks and leaving them with waiters instead of a tip at lunch on Sunday afternoon, which is something we really should never do. It involves building long-term relationships with people who are different from us, truly loving those people, sharing with them the beauty of holiness rather than the ugliness of strife. We also ought to pray, and as Anglicans, we equipped well for this task, given that we have the beautiful Book of Common Prayer, the Anglican Breviary, the Missal, and other prayerful practices. The key thing about prayer, though, is that it's not just about speaking, so much as it's about listening. So are we attuned to what God says to us through our liturgy and through the scriptures? A third thing we should be about is making our confession. Just as St. Peter acknowledges his unworthiness before our Lord, so we acknowledge our unworthiness as a part of our liturgy and also in the privacy of the confessional. By making a regular confession, we become more keenly aware that the power lies not in us, but in our Lord. And when we receive grace from confession, we need to use it to seek reconciliation and healing. The fourth and final and most significant thing that the church needs to do to be the church is to organize itself around the Mass. All other things that we should be doing, the gospel, prayer, and confession, are all dependent on the mystery at the heart of our faith that's played out at every Eucharistic service. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. It's played, replayed week after week for us as the sacrifice made by our Lord on the cross becomes present for us when we receive his body and blood and anticipate that great wedding supper of the Lamb that awaits us at the consummation of all things. So if we are to survive as the church, we must be the church. We must cling to the promise of Christ that he would send a counselor, the Holy Ghost, who will protect the church and guide her into all truth. Just as ancient Israel was forbidden from making alliances with the nations for protection, lest they credit their safety to other countries instead of God, we as the church shouldn't look to political parties, church programs, or any other human invention, but to our Lord. All human institutions will fail eventually." But if we take this morning's reading seriously, we come to the realization that the church is not a human institution, but a divine one. And as a result, we can have great confidence that the gates of hell will not prevail against her. Let us pray. O gracious father, we humbly beseech thee for thy holy Catholic church, that thou wouldest be pleased to fill it with all truth and all peace where it is corrupt, purify it, where it is in error, direct it, where in anything it is amiss, reform it, where it is right, establish it, where it is in want, provide for it, where it is divided, reunite it, for the sake of him who died and rose again, and ever liveth to make intercession for us, Jesus Christ, thy Son, our Lord. Amen.